Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. It's that time of year again. Christmas in the air, pumpkin spice lattes, the feeling of being watched, the colorful leaves of fall tinged with ineffable sense of existential dread. Oh, and you can break out your sweaters. I love sweaters. Yes, fall is coming, and with it comes the spooky season of Halloween. At the Agora Podcast Network, we celebrate the season every year with agoraphobia a month-long event on the Agora Podcast Network podcast feed. It's its its own feed. Every week in October, we post an episode compiled from short segments from a number of the hosts in our stable. And also, it's a great way to hear about some hosts in the network that maybe you haven't heard of. Uh, And if you're into spooky stuff, of course, that's the main point. But there's also a lot of interesting content that just doesn't fit in our normal feeds. So, for example, I did a segment from my other show, Why Though, which is about the music in the It's a Small World ride, the Disney ride. That may not seem spooky to you, but go check it out. I did the first one for this year's Agoraphobia, so if you go over to that feed, you'll see me already there. There will be a link in the show notes for that. Get in your coziest sweater, make some mold cider, pray to your god, and say goodbye to your friends, and head over to Agoraphobia a spooky tradition of the Agora Podcast Network. Here at Wittenberg to Westphalia, the Wars of the Reformation, we have many duties and responsibilities to the realm. And, you know, those peasants aren't going to squeeze themselves, so we depend on you, our listeners, to provide the resources that we need to keep doing this month after month. Every month, at every episode, I guess I should say, we give honor and praise to our donors and patrons who help make all this possible. This month, we have two donors and patrons whose glorious deeds have made them worthy of titles and lands. Up first, we have donor Josiah, who has chosen the name Bishop Josiah the Despoiler, abbess of St. Crapier Monastery. And next up, we have Ian, who shall be known henceforth as Duke Ian, Iron Lord of the Raging Dashhound Marches. Thank you very much to Josiah and Ian for their noble contributions to our realm. If you wish to become a donor or a patron, head over to the website, wittenbergtowestphaliapodcast.weebly.com, and I'll put a link in the show notes so you don't have to remember all that. And you go to the support page, and you'll see the reward levels there and all that stuff. 
Now, this past month, I attempted to do a video meet and greet for the people in the level three tier of membership, which is the aristocracy of the mind level. And one person showed up and also my mom. So I'm going to try and do it again in November. <laughs> um, this was supposed to be a monthly thing. Maybe that time slot's bad. We'll see what I can do. Everyone give it a try. try if, if you're up at that level, try and make it. Otherwise, I'll have to come up with something else. Thank you, everybody who has donated in the past or recently, and also to all of you out there for listening. I really appreciate it. If you do head over to the website, uh, it's not just for if you want to support the show. We also have a store with a bunch of new items in it, so that's worth checking out. And, you know, there's just a bunch of stuff about me and the episodes and things like that there. Also, don't forget my new podcast, Why Though? A Personal Journey Through My Record Collection. Link in the show notes for that as well. Got a couple episodes out now, and it's it's been a lot of fun. I, I only have like 20 listeners at this point. I don't even care. I'm just having a fun time. I know it's probably not everyone's cup of tea who's listening to this because it's a music history podcast and not a war history podcast, but anyway, it's fun. With that, let us begin. On the 29th of October, 1268, a 16-year-old boy and his best friend walked into a market square in Naples. The boy was named Conradin, and his friend was named Frederick. There was a crowd there to meet them, and a small stage had been erected for their use. The King of Naples had done them the honor of attending in person, and watched from a nearby box on bleachers. The two boys crossed the square and climbed the stage. Once on the stage, Conradin spoke to the crowd and proclaimed that, despite the words of his enemies, he was innocent. He threw his glove into the crowd and reportedly said, O oh mother, what griefs I cause you. Then he calmly walked across the stage, put his head onto the waiting block, where the executioner cut it off. His friend, Frederick, gave the head a final kiss goodbye before his head was removed as well. So it was that Conradin, the last in the line of the Hohenstaufen kings of Germany, Duke of Swabia, nominal king of Sicily and Jerusalem, and presumptive heir to the Holy Roman Empire, met his early end, dying a traitor's death in the marketplace in Naples. Amongst the enemies responsible for this act was Charles, the King of Sicily, but also Pope Clement IV, who had helped install formerly Charles of Anjou as King of Naples, partly at the behest of Charles' brother, the King of France. So ended the House of Hohenstaufen, but the dying was really just beginning. Everyone's right and no one is sorry. That's the start and the end of the story From the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning Greetings, my name is Benjamin Jacobs, your host as we travel towards Wittenberg and Westphalia, the wars of the Reformation. This is episode 79, the Investiture Controversy Introduction. The execution I described in our intro, which was considered rather scandalous even at the time, served to close a three-century relationship between the popes in Rome and the Holy Roman Emperors of Germany. This relationship had started with the crowning of Charlemagne as Emperor of the Romans in 800 by Pope Leo III. Initially a close and friendly alliance, the relationship turned into a conflict called the Investiture Controversy, which would in many ways ruin both institutions, and leave Europe as an arena of increasingly bitter interstate conflicts over the next seven centuries. Arguably, these controversies slid somewhat seamlessly into the conflicts over the Babylonian exile of the popes, which will be another season of the show, and to the Protestant Reformation, which is the 
point of this show. Now, before I elaborate further, there are the inevitable nomenclature issues to resolve. Namely, what is an investiture, and what is a controversy about an investiture? For many years, and for many historians, the investiture controversy was a very limited event. For these historians, the investiture controversy is a conflict that happened between Pope Gregory VII and Emperor Henry IV between the dates of 1075 and 1077. The name refers to the debate between these two grand persons as to who it was exactly, the secular ruler or the pope, who was allowed to invest a bishop with their office. The conflict supposedly ended with Henry backing down at a castle called Canossa. However, that was not actually the end of the conflict, because in 1081, Henry attacked Rome and drove Gregory into exile, where he would eventually die. Even that was not really the end, because a new pope took up the cause. This initial stage of the conflict would not really even end until peace was made between the institutions by their successors at the Concordat of Worms. And even that didn't really hold for more than a couple of years. This whole thing would flare up again and again and again, and on and on and on until the death of Conradin, at which point it took on a new phase and a new set of actors took the stage. More broadly, it was never confined only to Germany and Italy. Even in the time of Gregory VII and Henry IV, various kings and bishops across Europe took up the different sides of the conflict for various reasons. Notably, a separate set of incidents in England caused tensions between the Pope and the king in that country, and the Pope attempted to use people in Eastern Europe and Western Francia to put pressure on the people in East Francia. As a result, the debate over who had the power to appoint bishops which took both intellectual and physical forms, became a major controversy that shook the very foundations of the political order in Europe. Many of these conflicts were entirely disconnected from each other, sharing only the topic of secular and religious conflict over religious appointments. Many became entwined, however, with the major theater in Central Europe and Italy for a variety of reasons. As a result, many historians describe any conflict between the Pope and a secular ruler over the appointment of bishops or other issues, an investiture controversy. Many other historians argue with the other historians about whether that's appropriate or not. In light of this usage, this entire era, starting in 1075 and ending in 1268, was, to me, an era of investiture controversies. For professional historians, this is, of course, an open conflict, for some reason, and you should all know about it. But that is what I am going to be talking about in this season. This was not a period of constant warfare. Indeed, most of the conflict was fought out in a propaganda war between the intellectuals loyal to the various monarchs of Europe and the clerics living and working in the new Cluniac abbeys that had sprung up across the landscape. Indeed, most of the conflict was fought out in a propaganda war between the intellectuals loyal to the various monarchs of Europe and those who inclined more towards the Pope's arguments. Most of these people were clerics of one kind or another. This led to an energetic philosophical and theological discourse through the entire period, arguing for various positions held by the two or more sides. Major developments occurred in European political and religious thought as a result of this conflict, and it began to go down paths that increasingly diverged from those held by other former Roman territories. The major issue under debate was that, while surely the ideal was for secular and religious authorities to live in harmony, what if they didn't? Who was supposed to be given precedence? This is a topic we will be exploring more as we go on. Though I mentioned in the last episode that this was overall an era of comparative peace and economic growth, especially for the peasantry, who were mostly uninvolved in these higher-level political and religious conflicts, 
There were wars. I have mentioned early in the last season the Peace of God movement, started in response to the chaos and civil war in southern France, as sort of as we move into this period. We will definitely be returning to that topic shortly, as this movement helped reshape the relationship of the individual and the divine in this era, and moving forward. These last two points come together, which is to say, the points about the relationship of the church and secular authorities come together with the relationship of the individual and the divine, and they gave birth to a third major intellectual question of the era that would be worked out in real-world political events. How could a Christian, particularly a Christian in authority, affect change for the better in the world? Europe was comfortably Christian at this point, and increasingly ruled by laws the church saw as just, so what next? What responsibilities did the religious and political authorities have towards the world? How did a religion, based on the expectation of the end of days and a fatalistic fixation on the afterlife, deal with the competing, equally valid requirements to be good in this world? Could Christian military leaders and religious institutions use their newfound power to change things? Could an army fight and kill in the name of the Prince of Peace? Obviously, this is a pertinent question to have answered before we begin dealing with the wars of religion. As we've discussed in the last few episodes, this was an era of massive economic change, at least in comparison to the early Middle Ages. While the majority of the population that lived as rural peasants was starting an age of economic growth and relative prosperity, regional and long-distance trade networks had now revived, leading to increasing urbanization in Italy and Flanders, and along the trade routes that connected these areas to their hinterlands and to each other. At the same time, politics was dominated by feudal power structures, whose base of support was in the countryside of northern Europe. When we left our narrative, Otto, the first of the East Franks, had been declared emperor over a territory that included not only a rural Germanic heartland, but large portions of northern and central Italy as well, which were increasingly urban. Meanwhile, the Germanic Eastern Franks and the increasingly Latinized Western Franks had begun squabbling over the territories of Lotharingia, which lay between these two power centers. The Eastern Franks got the better of those first few rounds as the Western Frankish region was split up amongst feuding princes. Indeed, the monarchs of the new Capetian dynasty found themselves in control of only a small region around Paris, and a title that seemed to suggest that it included much more. How would the agrarian monarchies of eastern and western Francia deal with the rising urban centers in Italy and Flanders, and with each other? Given that one of the great nobles of France, William the Bastard, had just conquered himself an entire kingdom, what part would England play in events? How would the Pope be involved? Further afield, changes were occurring globally as well in ways that will enter our story, and I think it's worth taking a brief few moments to have a whirlwind walking tour to bring ourselves up to speed on these outside events. In China, the period between 618 and 907, roughly the same period as the Merovingian and Carolingian dynasties in Francia, was ruled by the Tang dynasty. A century of civil war followed in the Five Dynasties and Seven Kingdoms period, after which the Song dynasty gradually consolidated power. By the time that our story starts in 1075, the Song dynasty were basically on top of the heap, at the height of their power. But they had no really good answer to the barbarians coming south out of the steppes, as their military has been described by one podcaster as a bunch of keystone cops. During the time of the investiture controversy, the Song would lose half their empire to the Jin dynasty and then eventually lose everything to the Mongols. For details, check out Agora's own Chris Stewart on the History of China podcast. 
I've mentioned in the past season the factuality of the rise of the Muslim powers in the Middle East and North Africa. But just to put this all in proper order, the story really begins with a massive war between Persia and the Eastern Roman Empire that ended in 628. Just as both powers started reconsolidating their territory and tried to put themselves back together after a very destructive war, the armies of Islam came seemingly out of nowhere, wiped out Persia, and then turned on the Eastern Roman Empire and conquered more than half of its territory. The exhausted empires, riven by internal political and religious problems, simply could not put together a response to this new threat, and by 718, Islamic armies had taken territory from the Iberian Peninsula to the western borders of Tang China. Now, consolidating all this territory was another matter, and the first Umayyad Caliphate collapsed politically after only a few generations. It was replaced by the Abbasid Caliphate in 752, though portions of Spain and North Africa had formed independent Islamic political states in the process. This fracture of Islamic political power in the Western Mediterranean led to the rise of the so-called Saracen pirates that so impacted Western Europe at the time, and remained a menace until the rise of the maritime city-states in Italy, who more or less kept things in order. By 945, the Abbasid Caliphate in turn broke down, as Turkic converts in the armies of the Caliphate set themselves up as competing warlords of different regions of the Muslim world. The region would remain politically divided until the rise of the Ottoman Empire and the Persians in the early modern period, meaning that during the period of our story, they were weak and divided and ripe for plundering barbarians from both the East and the West. The History of Byzantium podcast covers a lot of this, but I haven't yet found a good source for the Muslim side. A few shows started, then pod faded. If there's any you like, please get in touch and I'll mention it in the next episode. I covered Iberia and Eastern Europe fairly thoroughly in the walking tour episodes, so I'm not going to dwell on things here, but as far as Iberia goes, suffice it to say that after the Muslim conquest that ended in 718, small Christian kingdoms formed in the north of the peninsula that began the process of pushing south. Several of these kingdoms started life as duchies established by Charlemagne, and so there was a major dose of Frankish influence early on. These tiny states would never have advanced successfully against a Spain that was politically united. But after several centuries of prosperous rule by the Umayyad Caliphate, the Iberian territory disintegrated into feuding warlords who based their power on the different Islamic ethnic groups that came in the first invasion force, such as Yemeni Muslims and Syrian Muslims and Berber Muslims. These troops had sort of split up the territory into different feudal territories, and when central power started to decline, they sought to their own ends in their different territories. The History of Spain podcast is doing a pretty good job covering the period, but I think he may have pod faded. If so, check out the History of the Reconquista, which will get to the end. I can say that with much confidence because Sharon has already gotten to the end of a number of crusades. As far as Eastern Europe goes, I just wanted to touch on how all this sort of interconnects, because that's sort of the area that this interconnects through. The fall of the Umayyad and Abbasid Caliphates led to economic shockwaves that affected the Rus trading networks across that northern arc of trade that we've talked so much about. Also involved was an influx of various Turkic peoples, notably the Pechenegs, who also restricted the riverine trading routes that went through their territory. This limited the value of captives taken by Viking raiders, which, you know, sort of collapsed the economic system to a certain extent. 
This, combined with the consolidation of monarchies in the Baltic, helped to wrap up the Viking Age in that region. In response, the Middle Eastern slave markets turned to new sources. The new Italian maritime states were able to supply Constantinople with slaves from the Slavic territories due to their direct contacts in the Balkan Peninsula, and eventually, even more importantly, via trading outposts in the Black Sea that they were able to secure due to their alliance with the Eastern Romans. The Italians also traded with Islamic merchants from North Africa, some of whom had kidnapped sub-Saharan Africans. Meanwhile, the new and extremely lucrative sugar plantations of the Mesopotamian region were increasingly worked by slaves taken by Arab outposts in Eastern Africa. You're going to want to watch this space. Of course, the other thing that helped wrap up the Viking Age, beyond the political shifts in Russia and the Levant, was the aforementioned conquest of England by William the Bastard of Normandy. This event will play into our story as well, and as I haven't covered it much thus far, please permit me a few moments to discuss how England fits into the stories we have already covered in the last few seasons. The developments of the Celtic and English churches have played something of a big role in our discussions of Christianity in the last season, despite me not having a whole lot to say about the political events going on in that same period. Due to their position at the far end of the world, these churches developed some unorthodox practices, but on the other hand, the integration of monasticism into Irish and the proto-Scottish societies led to a huge outburst of missionary energy and educational zeal. Monks from the Celtic Church would fan out across Europe, founding monasteries which set the stage for many of the developments to come in this next season, not to mention helping to convert England back from paganism, along with missionaries that came up from Rome itself. This made England the place where these two, let's say, dialects of Christianity came together for the first time, which led to conflicts as they realized the differences that had developed between Roman and Celtic Christianity. Ultimately, it was Roman Catholicism that won out, though this was not certain at the time. The victory was down to persuasive ideological and political factors, certainly, but of course we can't overlook the arrival of the Vikings. Because as it turned out, the political foundations of England, Ireland, and Proto-Scotland were not particularly resilient to outside raiding. The tribal systems in the Celtic areas had no central ability to respond to raids, and only gradually fought them off over time. In England, the political systems that the Anglo-Saxons had established were exacerbating the differences between rich and poor, and ultimately, when Vikings showed up, there was little in the way of a depth of loyalty to the competing kingdoms of England. Four out of the five of these kingdoms crumbled, with many poor peasants simply joining the Vikings voluntarily as a way out of their absurd tax obligations and unresponsive political structure. The fifth kingdom, that of Wessex, survived by bringing poor peasants into the military system and building fortifications. Ultimately, Wessex retook the country, but it was a near-run thing. And eventually, when entropy set in and the nobility began acting like their bad selves again, a Viking invasion organized by the new kings of Denmark would see England conquered by a King Knut. England would revert to the control of the dynasty of Wessex due to a succession crisis in Denmark, but the regime was not stable or particularly well-liked. The final king in this dynasty, Edward the Confessor, also had no children. As a result, a popular local noble, Harold Godwinson, was able to assume the throne when Edward died, using the traditional customs of the English realm. However, the claims of Godwinson to the throne were not open and shut, and the country was simultaneously attacked by a Norwegian army pursuing a claim to be the successors of Knut, and a Norman-French army that claimed to have been promised the throne by Edward. Famously, 
Harold would beat the Norwegians very badly, but succumbed to the Normans under William the Bastard at the Battle of Hastings. William, now with the much nicer name of William the Conqueror, basically swept the plate clean politically in England. By right of conquest, he kept whatever local laws and customs were convenient, but by and large simply imposed an idealized version of French feudalism onto England at sword point. This act, which was possible almost nowhere else in Europe, gave England and Normandy a much more stable government than in any other area in Europe, albeit at the cost of a huge amount of brutality. The way the system worked will be largely familiar to you. The king kept a lot of land for himself, but granted out around half of it to major nobles. They and the king in turn then granted out land to smaller nobles, who granted it out to smaller nobles, and so on down to the peasants. The peasants were forced into manors and villages that were governed like the manors and villages we have discussed on the continent. Because this was all imposed at once, and in an ideal fashion, England didn't have the chaos that was caused in France by overlapping loyalties for nobles who had land from more than one lord, or any questions about who owned what, or the kaleidoscope of different kinds of deals between the different parties to these relationships. Much of that would eventually develop, but it would take time. In the interim, the king could govern simply by retaining the loyalty of a small handful of large noble houses and the church. Initially, this system did not have much in the way of an administration, and to keep things running smoothly, William spent most of his time in the saddle. When he wasn't out on campaign, he was riding around his kingdom, administering justice and letting himself be seen. However, he was able to maintain awareness of what was happening on a local level because he had the support of the church, whose hierarchy formed a network of literate people across the countryside, many of whom moonlighted as local leaders and administrators for the new king. It's also worth saying that the church also was given an awful lot of land and was a stable force that administered a lot of the land and, you know, kept things running smoothly without having too much in the way of military forces at their disposal. The church had supported William from the beginning, which is kind of odd when you think about it. As an illegitimate son of his father, he was not necessarily the obvious choice for ruling Normandy even, especially from the point of view of the primogeniture-minded church. He went on to invade another country, take it by force, and starve and murder the inhabitants in order to impose his own laws without any kind of justification. These are things the church generally did not support on the continent in the Middle Ages. However, William had always gone out of his way to make the church friendly. This was done in Normandy by picking people to be bishops who would be friendly, and then giving lavishly to church building programs. The invasion of England was justified by a story that seemed to indicate that the last legitimate king of England had wanted William to take over, which is a bit less far-fetched than it might sound. Edward the Confessor had actually grown up in Normandy when he was in exile because Canute was in control of England. Once he returned to court in England, there was a major Norman faction of his allies at court. And also, little thing, Edward hate, hate, hated Harold Godwinson. Beyond the fact that Godwinson was politically strong enough to thwart the king's policies and present a plausible person to take over after the king died, Godwinson's father had helped to assassinate Edward's brother during the reign of Canute. Whether England had ever made his desire to have William take over after his death official is very doubtful, and most historians agree that William's story is ridiculous. However, it's not like William had nothing going on on his side. Now, Historians tend to take Harold's side because Harold was proclaimed king in line with English legal traditions, which were more important than pretty much anything else that might have been said. However, this whole situation presented enough of a pretext that William was able to write the Pope, 
who was already friendly because of all the building programs and everything. And William then said that Harold was an oathbreaker who had not honored the wishes of Edward the Confessor, who was a very holy man. The Pope gave his blessing for the invasion and even sent a papal banner. Now, we don't have any evidence of any sort of deal being involved in this, but it's probably not a coincidence that once he took over, William cleaned house in the English church. We don't have clear evidence of exactly what happened, like we don't have letters about English clergy being butchered or exiled, but within William's reign, all the bishops had been replaced by French and Norman-born individuals. These bishops, with William's assistance, gleefully set about rooting out any remnants of Celtic Christian practice in England, and filled all the important church offices with French candidates as well. In this context, it's not surprising that the church hierarchy, from the Pope in Rome down to the clerics and the bishop's administration, loved William and were happy to help him administer his realm. This whole system established by William worked great when there was a strong king in place with a good relationship with the church. However, primogeniture had not really been fully established in Normandy at this point. The system in Normandy seems to have been that the eldest son inherited all the lands that the father had initially inherited, while any new lands conquered would go to the other sons. William had three surviving sons at this point. Robert Shortsocks was the eldest, William Rufus was the second surviving son, and one Henry was the third surviving son. There had been a different second son, but he'd already died by this point, so ignore that. Normandy, which William the Conqueror had inherited, you'll remember, was given to his eldest son, Robert Shortsocks. Following Norman tradition then, the land he had conquered in England went to his second eldest son, William Rufus. While Henry, being the third in line, basically got nothing and had to bribe Robert Shortsocks to get anything. He was given a fairly small patch of land on the Contentin Peninsula in Normandy. Now, most of the nobles in England were also nobles in Normandy, so this inheritance system basically took the entire administrative apparatus that William had devised and used it to ensure a war, because the nobles were being forced to pick between one monarch and the other, and someone was going to lose their property no matter what they chose. It would sort of be like if you took two male elk in the mating season and just tied them together. It would be bloody. The results are as fun and predictable as they are somewhat tangential to our story, and the resolution risks spoilers, but given that this episode is a little on the short side, I'm going to have a little fun and at least give you the abridged version. What followed was a major but somehow largely forgotten civil war. The first thing that happened was that both brothers teamed up to entirely disinherit Henry again, which seems like a bit of overkill. On the other hand, Henry was very popular and seems to have set himself up with a court that had all the trappings of someone who expected to be more than just a minor noble in Normandy, so they may have felt threatened by that. In any case, the brothers never quite finished the job because they kept getting distracted and fighting each other, or there were other rebellions that they had to deal with, because, yeah, the entire political system was fighting against them. At one point, Henry, the ever-loyal vassal of his elder brother, no matter what the elder brother did, helped out with a rebellion caused by Robert Shortsock's terrible misrule. Whatever the cause, the noble Henry hated disloyalty, and when Henry captured the leader of the rebellion, he was so incensed by the man's disloyalty that he dragged him up to the top of the castle and tossed him off the walls. Whee! And there was much rejoicing. Podcast Footnote most of our sources were written after the event by chroniclers who worked for Henry. Can you tell? End podcast footnote. In any case, 
cutting about a decade of high adventure short, Henry eventually was driven off his lands in Normandy, finally, and he chose to take shelter at the court of William Rufus in England. They kept trying to invade Normandy together, but things never quite worked out. Then, one day, Robert Shortsocks heard about the First Crusade and decided that he needed to get in on that action. So he signed a treaty with William Rufus, whereby William Rufus would temporarily administer Normandy while Robert Shortsocks was off in the Levant. This seems like a naive thing to do, but these deals were being guaranteed by the church, who swore to come down very hard on anyone who stole from or in any way harmed a person who was out on crusade. So off went Robert, leaving William Rufus running the whole kit and caboodle, rapidly rewarding his own supporters in Normandy and sidelining the people who were loyal to Robert Shortstocks. To celebrate the situation, William Rufus and his younger brother Henry engaged in that most wonderful pastime of the early medieval aristocracy, a hunting expedition together, out in the woods, deep, deep in the woods without too many people around, and all heavily armed. Wouldn't you know it, by pure random happenstance, a stray arrow hit William Rufus, and he died. Shocked and grieving over the loss of his dear older brother, Henry did the thing that any of us would have done in the same situation. He got on his horse and rode the 20 miles to Winchester Castle as if he was being chased by a rabid weasel. Why Winchester? Well, for whatever reason, that is where the royal treasury was being stored. Henry got there, sat on the giant box of gold, and declared himself king. He then set about replacing or co-opting all of William Rufus's men in England and all of Robert Shortsock's men in Normandy. To shore up his popularity, he married one Matilda of Scotland, who was one of the last survivors of the dynasty of the House of Wessex, so hopefully this would get him some loyalty from the native Anglo-Saxon peasantry. Of course, when Robert Shortsocks got back from the Levant, he was not amused. Nor was much of the church. Nor were a number of the nobles in Normandy, and, to be honest, a fair number of the nobles in England. Both sides prepared fleets and armies. Robert's armies were organized by his personal propagandist, Fulmbard, Bishop of Durham. Henry's cause was pushed by the eminent theologian, Archbishop Anselm of Canterbury. Gathering his army with Anselm's help, Henry went far to the south, where the channel was narrower, and waited there. But Robert Shortsocks sailed right around him and landed further north, right near Winchester, again. He was, as it happened, only a little further than a 20-mile ride from the treasury, and all the nobles who had been making up excuses not to join Henry suddenly went and joined Robert Shortsocks. With the momentum now in his favor, Robert did what any of us would have done in this situation. He sat on his backside and did nothing, while Henry moved his force between Robert and the treasury, thus trapping Robert against the coast and forcing a battle which, if Robert lost, would leave him with nowhere to run to. Rather than fight this battle, they sat down and negotiated a peace treaty, at which point Robert Shortsocks went back to Normandy, which promptly fell apart into total chaos because of his bad rule. Again, those sources. Meanwhile, Henry punished all of Robert's supporters in England, built up an army, and then invaded Normandy. It took a few tries, but eventually he conquered the whole place and threw his brother in jail. He then told the rest of Europe that he had simply stepped in to restore order to what was effectively a failed state, and he was just acting as a caretaker and protector of Normandy while his brother was, uh, indisposed. Podcast footnote. I'm leaving out a ton of good stuff here, and if you want all the juicy details, I strongly urge you to check out David Crowther's History of England podcast, as well as Jamie Jeffers' British History podcast, which has gone through the Anglo-Saxon period with an excruciating attention to detail that I can only applaud. End podcast footnote. 
Now, why go through this whole story? Well, the thing about Henry's story is that while it is exceptionally fun, most of what happened in it is not particularly rare in terms of what was going on in Europe at large. On the one hand, administrations and political orders were forming. The church and the nobility were vital parts of these orders, and they could form a stable social order under the right circumstances. And it's worth saying that, after the first few years of the conquest, most peasants in England and Normandy were not really involved in this war that I just described, which was a fairly low-level thing in terms of the sizes of the armies involved. But, throw in one botched succession or other political calamity, and all of a sudden everyone's fighting tooth and nail to be king of the hill. Most importantly for us is the role of the church in this story. The bishops in England were being appointed by the kings, and held huge tracts of land from the king. They were major players in this conflict, and took sides on these secular political issues based on what suited their interests, or their ideology. Everyone was able to make good theological arguments for why their side was religiously correct, but this intertwining of religion and secular administration did not sit well with everyone. In fact, when we come back to finish off Henry's story, we will see him get in a whole heap of trouble over this. But we will not do so for a few episodes yet. Because the main focus of our story is the investiture controversy, and, as I said in the beginning, that initially kicked off as a result of the conflict between Henry IV of East Francia and Pope Gregory VII. There are a few pieces of background information that we really need to cover before we get into that story. Because, of course we do. It's me. I stopped our narrative at the end of Season 2 with the death of Otto the Great. Henry IV, as I've said, one of the two main players in our story, was by my count the sixth emperor to claim European overlordship after Otto. And there's some twists and turns in the story to be sure that are kind of important, so we are going to have to cover that. When Otto died, Pope Benedict VI was uh, in prison at Otto's order, which is a great story that I didn't have time to get to at the time. So that needs to get covered. In any case, Gregory VII was somewhere between the 13th and the 15th pope to rule after Benedict, depending on how you do your counting, so there's some fun stories in there to be covered as well. I am not going to do this in obsessive detail, because there's pontifacts and the history of the papacy, if you want that stuff, but I can't not talk about this. We need to set up what we're going to be talking about in the main series of episodes. So what I basically plan to do is run through each of these background sections in a speed run. Hopefully I can get through it in like two episodes each. So that's four episodes because we got to do what's going on in Germany, what's going on in Rome. I also need to speed run the West Frankish monarchs and the story of the Norman conquest of Italy and Sicily. And then there's two theoretical episodes that I need to deal with. One on the idea of European kingship which is obviously going to be an important ideological point in this conflict, and then one on the changing status of the popes. So by my count, that's around eight episodes before we get to Henry and Gregory. Did you expect anything else? It's going to be fun anyway, so just come along for the ride. In any case, I have a lot of reading to do. The next episode, luckily, is going to be the Podiversary episode, and since I have so much reading, I'm going to not be doing anything research-heavy this time. Instead, I'm going to be doing an interview with Agora's own Zach Twomley about his new book, Matchlock and the Embassy, as well as our shared love of the Thirty Years' War and other similar subjects. The episode after that will be the episode on medieval kingship, 
And then in January, I will start to go over the history in Germany between Otto I and Henry VII. I'd love to get it all done in one episode. I'm almost positive it's going to be two. I'm going to really try to keep it to two. So probably in March, we will do the episode on the institution of the papacy, circa 1100, and then speed run the popes from Benedict to Gregory. Again, probably two episodes. Then the Normans in Italy, then the kings in France, and finally, we will be with our two main characters, Henry and Gregory. All of this means I probably need to read three-ish books and a few articles by January, not to mention what I gotta do after. So if you don't mind, I'm gonna sign off now and get to it. But we certainly have a ton of great stories and interesting concepts to explore together in the next epic season of Wittenberg to Westphalia, Wars of the Reformation. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.